Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. We begin with a stark economic warning from J.P. Morgan Head Jamie Dimon, the CEO of the largest U.S. bank, says it's time to prepare for an economic hurricane, and that's amid persistent global financial threats. Dimon's comments are a stark change in tone from his more sunnier forecasts, and they come amid a turbulent time for investors increasingly worried about a recession. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Uh, Rahel, I have to say, you know, a hurricane of a time. I mean, we're talking about worst-case scenario that Jamin Dimon is uh, predicting. Uh, but this, of course, means that we're still facing a lot of risks. The question is, how believable are these forecasts right now? A lot of risk, a lot of uncertainty. But look, Eleni, anytime you hear a CEO who is probably the most recognizable American CEO start to say, brace yourself for a hurricane, I think it's enough to raise some eyebrows and, and perhaps cause some concern uh, among global investors. This is what he said, uh, saying, brace yourself for a hurricane. But Eleni, as you know, this comes just a week and a half after last week he said that there were storm clouds dissipating. So uh, the comments yesterday raising some eyebrows and causing some concern, not just because of the strong language he used, but because it appears to be an about face from what he said last week. Right now, it's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. You know, everyone thinks the, the Fed can handle this. That hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. We just don't know if it's a minor one or Superstorm Sandy or uh, yeah, Sandy or, or uh, Andrew or something like that. And it's, you, you better brace yourself. So his concerns, Eleni, are, uh, of course, inflation. He said it is distorting the economy. Uh, the Fed, the actions the Fed will have to take to uh, rein in inflation in terms of quantitative tightening, in terms of raising interest rates. And he says, look, of course, the war and its impact on oil prices, saying that he could see oil prices going up to as high as 150 to 175 dollars a barrel. Now, all of that said, he did say that there were still some sunny spots in the midst of this forecast. He said job creation, uh, jobs are still very strong, as we know, and said that the consumer is still spending. But again, when you hear a CEO like Jamie Dimon, certainly uh, among the most recognizable on Wall Street, but perhaps even uh, among American CEOs start to talk about hurricanes and bracing yourself, it really is going to set off some some alarm bells among investors and Americans. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I'm enjoying the weather forecasts, you know, in the middle of the economic forecasts. These analogies are always quite fun. But they're obviously pricing something in that they hadn't anticipated before. And I I know that it's a very fluid situation. Look, the jobs numbers this week are going to be absolutely vital in understanding a little bit of what's to come. 
Yeah, it seems like every data point is becoming increasingly more important, right, as, as everyone tries to game out and, and try to figure out the pieces of the puzzle. But yes, exactly. So the official government employment report, that's released tomorrow. The expectation among economists is closer to 340,000. That would be pretty remarkable if we see it because, Eleni, for the last 12 months, we have seen job growth of at least 400,000. Now, we did just get another employment report, the ADP uh, private employment report, and that showed some signs of easing. That showed about 100 $128,000 in jobs created in the private sector. That is the slowest number since the recovery. So that is a positive sign for officials at the Fed and for President Biden, who we know said in his op-ed earlier this week that he was looking for job growth to start slowing as officials try to rein in inflation. So perhaps uh, this news is a sign that the economy could be cooling a bit. And to your point, tomorrow's a employment report will be crucial too to see if this is part of a trend we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Taking some of that froth off the market. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. Always good to see you. Um, and as we've just mentioned, it's the unpredictability of the oil prices uh, that is a big focus right now. And they are now falling on reports OPEC is finally considering ramping up production to make up for Russia's shrinking outputs. There are reports oil producers will agree to increase output more than expected. This has been one of the key points. Claire Sebastian, I have to say, you know, all eyes have been on OPEC. OPEC has normally in this time said, look, there's a lot of speculation in the market. We need to understand the supply-demand dynamics and now a clue in terms of what they're planning to do. Yeah, Eleni, uh, OPEC, uh, OPEC Plus, in fact, the 23 members of OPEC Plus meeting today, we're hearing uh, from sources quoted by Reuters that the meeting has actually ended. Uh, and it seems, if you look at the reports that are coming out ahead of this, that they are potentially looking to find some way of raising output. So far, they've been doing it very slowly, gradually adding barrels back onto the market that were taken off due to the huge drop in demand. During the pandemic, they have stuck to their guns despite increasing pressure from the likes of the U.S. to try to add more oil back to bring down these sky-high prices. But now we're hearing today a source to Reuters, saying, an OPEC Plus source, saying that it's highly likely that they might raise uh, their output for, for, for July from the 432,000 barrels a day that they've been doing for the past two months up to 600,000. So that, that would be an interesting sea change for OPEC. We've also had a Wall Street Journal report ahead of this meeting that they might look to exempt Russia from the current production plan, which could pave the way for the likes of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, uh, to, to, to try to make up the shortfall in Russian production that we've seeing, seen. Uh, two OPEC plus sources have told Reuters that Russia's production is down by about a million barrels a day uh, over the past few months because of the crisis in Ukraine uh, and Western sanctions. So all of this very significant, especially because we see these sky-high oil prices that, you know, they're, they're down a little bit today, but still up close to decade highs. So the world has very much been looking to OPEC to try to do something about this. Yeah, and Claire, look, OPEC Plus has also tried to maintain sort of some kind of sense of balance with regards to the sensitivities in terms of making sure that Russia remains in OPEC Plus. Um, this has been sort of one of those sticking points. Uh, with regards to the potential of countries being able to increase their output, do you get a sense in terms of when we'll have that kind of announcement coming through? We know the end of May was always a big cutoff point in terms of understanding where the market dynamics fall. 
Yeah, so I think in terms of, of OPEC, all eyes are going to fall on, as I said, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE. They are the ones uh, that have some spare capacity out there. But, but I think it's a valid question at this moment is, is how much difference can, can OPEC really make? If you look at the number that's been quoted by Reuters, 600,000 barrels uh, a day over the next uh, month or so, that that might not be such a big change for the market. If you think about the shortfall right now, if Russia is down about a million barrels, that is roughly the amount that the market would be looking uh, to be added back. And OPEC isn't getting anywhere close to that. So I think a valid question is, can OPEC make much difference? But I think there's geopolitics at play here as well. One expert, Eleni, strikingly said to me uh, just now that OPEC Plus has stayed on the sidelines during the whole conflict in Ukraine, has not condemned Russia if they decide to exempt Russia from this production agreement, which, frankly, Russia would not be too happy about because they want the market to stay tight and oil prices to stay high. That might be a way, this expert said, of tacitly sort of, you know, laying down the line on this conflict, essentially criticizing it without criticizing it. So watch the geopolitics around this. It's not happening in a vacuum. Yeah. Exactly. Claire Sebastian, good to see you. Thank you so much. Right, we head to eastern Ukraine now. The regional military saying heavy fighting continues in the city of Severodonetsk. Much as much uh, of the city has now been occupied by Russian forces. Meanwhile, President Zelensky says many Ukrainian children have been taken to Russia since the start of the war. Matthew Chance is live in Kyiv with the details. Matthew, uh, good to see you. Um, it is important to note in terms of what is happening in Severodonetsk right now. Um, the Ukrainians are saying that a big part of the city is now in Russian hands. Give us a sense of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, there's been you know, very fierce fighting taking place in that northeastern corner of, of the country in the Luhansk region for control of Severodonetsk, uh, which is the biggest city that is still not fully under Russian control in that region. Um, and what the Ukrainians say now is that despite their efforts, the, there is about well, more than 80 percent of the city is in Russian hands. They've still got people sort of inside uh, fighting on the streets, making it as hard as possible, they say, uh, for the Russians to take over fully. There's also been a report come out earlier today that there are still, still large numbers of civilians trapped inside Severodonetsk, including at least 800 people, according to Ukrainian officials, um, hiding in Soviet-era air raid uh, bunkers underneath the chemical factory in, in, on the outskirts of that city. The industrial zone of Severodonetsk is still apparently in Ukrainian government uh, forces' hands. Uh, but nevertheless, it raises, again, the concerns about the plight of the civilian population that has been hit disproportionately hard uh, when it comes to the fighting that's been taking place over the past four months. Now. It's actually 100 days tomorrow. Um, that the, this conflict began, uh, and there's been an enormous amount of civilians uh, who have been uh, killed and injured because of the fighting between the two sides. Yeah, Matthew, and it's such an important point. Um, this sort of indiscriminate focus on civilians has been uh, pretty chilling to, to hear about. Another line that's really struck me is that President Zelensky says 200,000 children have been taken to Russia since the start of the war. Do we know anything about these numbers? Well, they, they seem to tally with what the Russians say. The Russians uh, have given their own account of how many people from Ukraine, in, well, they would say they've been given sanctuary inside Russia to escape uh, from the fighting there um, and to escape from Ukrainian forces. They put that number at 1.6 million, including well over 200,000 children. 
Um, it's just that the Ukrainians characterize it very differently. They say that their citizens are being deported uh, to Russia forcefully uh, to sort of actively sort of you know, take away the people of Ukraine and destroy the country uh, as a sort of entity. And amongst them are more than 200,000 children. And, and so the figure isn't so much in dispute. It's the motive for those people, uh, the children and the adults, going to Russia from Ukrainian territory uh, in the first place. Uh, but it is, you know, whichever way you look at it, an incredible and tragic yeah. movement of people as a result of this conflict. Matthew Chance, thank you so very much uh, for that update. Right, let's turn our attention now to London, where in a shared national moment, tens of thousands of people converged on the British capital to mark Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. From the famous balcony of Buckingham Palace, Her Majesty and other members of the Royal Family watched a special fly past by the Royal Air Force, Royal Navy and British Army. 70 aircraft were used for her 70 years of unwavering service and duty to the Crown. In a tradition dating back at least 260 years, members of the armed forces took part in the Queen's official birthday parade called Trooping the Colour. The Jubilee is being marked by a four-day holiday weekend, giving supporters a chance to show their appreciation with plenty of flag-waving and street parties. And uh, Anna Stewart is down among the crowds near Buckingham Palace. You're in the thick of things, Anna. How are the celebrations going? We saw the famous balcony moment as well. How are you and people on the ground feeling today? Well, it has been electric, the atmosphere down here. The crowds are beginning to disperse, but there were just yeah. thousands of people early this morning. Some people actually camped overnight. This is day one of, as you say, a four-day extravaganza to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee. So this is the first Platinum Jubilee that anyone has ever experienced because this is the first British monarch to be on the throne for 70 years. So it's a particularly special occasion, particularly, I think, after the pandemic, people coming together celebrating a moment of national unity and lots of people wanting to just show their respect for the Queen. Now, as you said, today was Trooping the Colour. This is one of the uh, big calendar events every year uh, for the royal family. It marks the Queen's birthday. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but this year was particularly, of course, spectacular, given it's a jubilee year. Uh, pomp and ceremony, Eleni, like none other. In fact, I think it's got the most pomp and ceremony of any event other than perhaps a coronation. So we had, <coughs> excuse me, lots of pollen from the tree. Hundreds of soldiers <coughs> and horses down uh, the mall here. We also had royal procession. We had uh, Prince William, Prince Charles, Princess Anne, all on horses <coughs> in regimental uniforms. And of course, we had the children and Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, in carriages as well. You mentioned the fly pass because, of course, we had the big salute from the balcony, both from the Queen for trooping the colour for the first time, so she was comfortable, but also for the fly pass where she was joined with family members. I hope you've got some pictures of Prince Louis, Eleni, because as yeah. ever, there was a child on the balcony covering his ears because the fly pass was pretty noisy. <laughs> but it's been a great start to the four-day event. And people have flooded in from all sorts of places. I've met people from Canada, people from South Africa, your hometown, coming especially for this event yeah. to pay their respect to the Queen. Yeah, it sounds pretty exciting. Look, get some water. I know you've been speaking to us and to <laughs> CNN all day with your coverage. Well done. Um, I'm sure the next few days are going to be very exciting. Good to see you always, yeah. Anna Stewart. I will go and get a, I'll get a glass of champagne. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a good idea, I was going to say. All right, so straight ahead.
New details are emerging about the initial response to the Uvalde, Texas school massacre. And one vaccine maker is working with more countries around the world. As monkeypox cases continue to rise, I'll speak with the president and CEO of Bavarian Nordic next. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. A gunman in the U.S. city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, opened fire Wednesday in a medical building, killing four people. The shooter, who has not been identified, was also found dead. Police suspect he took his own life. The police captain said the scene was madness, with hundreds of people trying to get out of hundreds of rooms. Now, new details are emerging from last week's mass shooting in Texas. The mayor of Uvalde says... A would-be negotiator tried frantically to reach the gunman by phone during the attack at Robb Elementary School, but he didn't answer. Nineteen children and two teachers were killed. Now, in Shanghai, officials have sealed off several neighborhoods after detecting seven new COVID cases. It comes just a day after the city loosened a strict two-month lockdown. Officials are still requiring people to test negative before entering public spaces. But many residents have had to wait hours in line to take COVID tests. Hollywood stars Johnny Depp and Amber Heard have both been found liable for defamation in their lawsuits against each other. But the jury awarded significantly more damages to Depp, who had sued his ex-wife over domestic abuse claims she made in an op-ed without naming him. Heard countersued, saying Depp smeared her when his lawyer called her accusations a hoax. She plans to appeal Wednesday's verdict. As the world recovers from the coronavirus pandemic outbreak of a different kind is gaining a lot of attention, and that is monkeypox. The World Health Organization says more than 550 confirmed cases have been reported in 30 countries. And as cases rise, Bavarian Nordic has emerged as a monkeypox focal point. The Danish vaccine maker is the only producer of a vaccine approved against the disease. After supplying the shot to some European countries last month, Bavarian Nordic said it has signed more contracts with various undisclosed countries. The vaccine called Genios is also approved for protection against monkeypox by U.S. regulators. Paul Chaplin, president and CEO of Bavarian Nordic, joins me now. Paul, really good to see you. Um, I, I want you to first give me a sense uh, in terms of the risks here of monkeypox spreading around the world. And I, it's also really interesting, firstly, that we're seeing these level of cases. And secondly, that countries are responding by calling you to set up contracts. Yes, good morning. Um, so monkeypox is a serious disease. However, it's nowhere near as infectious as, for example, covid so I think uh, while we have to take all measures necessary to try and contain the outbreak, uh, the general public uh, shouldn't be too alarmed. However, we're in a very privileged position that there are now vaccines and also therapeutics that are available so we can actually contain and treat the current outbreak around the globe. Okay, give me a sense of the vaccine that you produce. It's actually for smallpox, but it also protects against monkeypox. Um, I want you to give me a sense of how much you're producing right now, um, which countries you're supplying to, and also the new countries that have called in for assistance. 
So we've had a long-standing relationship with a number of governments where we've developed this vaccine, Janaeus, and we've been supplying the vaccine over the last 10 years for, for countries like the US to uh, stockpile. So it's typically a made-to-order vaccine. However, we do have limited stocks, which we're currently trying to distribute to countries that desperately need the vaccine to contain the outbreak. But we're also gearing up production so that we can continue supply in the coming weeks and months. Yeah. How much are you producing right now? What's your capacity? So our, our total capacity is several million doses until the end of the year, but typically in a normal year, we can manufacture up to 30 million doses. So we have the capacity, I believe, to address the demand uh, that we have available. Um, I, you know, this isn't one of those mandated vaccines. Do you believe we're going to reach a point where this is going to be a required vaccine down the line as we see the spread? I know that you said this isn't as contagious as COVID, but there are definitely red flags in terms of the numbers that we're seeing that are emerging in, in various countries. So we're certainly seeing a very unusual and the largest global outbreak of monkeypox that we've ever seen. However, I think right now the urgent need is to supply enough vaccine to protect healthcare workers, first-line responders and close contacts. I think in that way, together with therapeutics, there's a very good chance that we can contain the outbreak uh, and there won't be any need for mass vaccination. Um, you have an entity, a manufacturing facility right now in Denmark. Are you going to be relying on third-party vaccine manufacturers? Could you give me a sense of the production value chain and what you're thinking about in the future as you receive more orders? Yes, yeah, so we have, as I said, quite a large capacity and capability in-house. But we have also historically worked with many different manufacturers around the world. And we would do that willingly if the demand increased but as I said, right now, I believe we have the capacity that can meet the global demand. Yeah. So can you tell me the countries that have already put through orders? Are you able to give us that information? So unfortunately, many of the countries uh, don't want there to be disclosed. But as I said, as a CEO, my main role here is really to make sure that we're distributing the stocks that we have and the future stocks that we're manufacturing yeah. to as many countries and organizations as I can. Right, Paul Chaplin, thank you so very much. Uh, good to speak to you. Much appreciated. Thank you. All right, we're going to a short break. And coming up, a former Russian politician is now fighting for Ukraine on the front line. He joins us live next. Stay with CNN. Back to the latest on the war in Ukraine. Police say more than 1,300 civilians have been found dead in the Kyiv region since the Russian invasion in late February. Hundreds of people are still missing across the area. CNN's Matthew Chance visited one small village near the capital where the wounds of the Russian attack are all too fresh. What he found there may be disturbing to some viewers. In the liberated villages north of the Ukrainian capital, the streets are lined with the scars of war. And it's not just buildings destroyed. We met Sergei, a villager whose home was overrun by Russian troops, who then shot him, he says, 
and left him for dead. So it went there and then it went out the back. He shows me the gut-wrenching bullet wounds, but his emotional scars run even deeper. Sometimes I have nightmares and can't sleep at night, and I pray they won't ever come back, he tells me, through tears of pain and anger. I'll never forgive Russians for what they did, he says. And they did much worse. Just steps from Sergei's door, police forensic teams are unearthing yet another crime scene. Weeks after Russian troops were pushed from this area, locals are still finding the bodies of their neighbours. We were shown three makeshift graves on this street alone. What do you think when you see this? What, what goes through your mind when you, when you see these bodies being dug from these shallow graves at the side of the road? So we see that Russian troops have already gone for more than one month, but we still find the evidence of their presence. That's just... astonishing, isn't it, that even a month after they've gone, more than a month, so still finding bodies. As it has Ukrainian been... officials tell me more than 320 civilians are still missing in this region alone. But one by one, they're being found. As a lot of people are missing, you cannot imagine the eyes of mothers whose children were lost. You cannot imagine eyes of relatives uh, whose beloved have been uh, captured or have been killed uh, on the front line. It is a awful, grim business, digging up the bodies of the thousands of people scattered across this entire country in shallow graves that have yet to be identified. This was Vitaly, just 43 years old, and the neighbors tell me he didn't present a threat to the Russians, he wasn't a soldier, in fact, he was vulnerable. He didn't have a job, he, he drank too much, his family had left him, but he was hungry. And he was trying to get some food from a Russian vehicle that was parked just here when they caught him and, uh, and shot him dead. Just one of the many alleged crimes, many tragedies in a Ukrainian nightmare that's yet to end. Matthew Chance, CNN, in Kachali, Ukraine. Devastating stories. And joining us now is Russian dissident Ilya Ponomaryov. He's a former member of the Russian parliament and now fighting for Ukraine after joining the military. And he was exiled from Russia after voting against the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Ilya, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, it's always appreciated. Thanks for having me. You know, we're almost 100 days. In fact, Tomorrow is going to be 100 days. It's a, it's a full 100 days That's of this correct. war. I want you to tell me about how you feel now and your resolve to continue fighting on the Ukrainian side. Uh, obviously, uh, I feel a little bit better. Uh, that was in the first night. Because in the first night, it was not clear whether the uh, daylight will come back again or not. Um, Okay, we have lost uh, Ilya. We're going to try and get him back. Um, we are going to try and establish contact once again. We're going to go to a short break and uh, hopefully we'll have Ilya when we return. Stay with CNN.
Right, welcome back. And we have Ilya Ponomaryov uh, back online with us. He's a former Russian parliamentarian and fighting on the Ukrainian side. Uh, Ilya, good to have you back online. And you were telling me about how you feel right now, almost 100 days into the war. Yes, uh, sorry for the quality of the connection. Sometimes it breaks. Uh, but thanks for Elon Musk, who helps us with Starlinks. That, that helps to fix it. Uh, so uh, what uh, we uh, were talking about uh, is that in the first days, it was not clear how it would turn out at, uh, uh, at the end. And uh, yeah, we were very much afraid that we will not see the next daylight. We were prepared to fight and to die. Right now, it's a totally different situation because the Ukrainian army uh, won the uh, war over uh, Kiev, and uh, right now the front lines are stabilized. Uh, uh, Putin's army kicked back from Kharkiv as well. They still are trying to advance and they do some uh, uh, steady but very, very slow and uh, very painful advances. Uh, in uh, Luhansk region, they cannot achieve the same. Uh, in Donbass, uh, but at the same time, Ukrainian army advances in uh, uh, direction of Kherson. So uh, it's uh, it's the war situation. I think that uh, without uh, additional um, uh, reinforcements, uh, Ukrainian army would not be able to uh, organize a significant counterattack. But nevertheless, uh, still the situation is way, way, way better than than it was 100 days ago. Yeah, and that's very encouraging because I, I want to talk about how the front lines have changed. And it's a different situation, as you say, in the eastern part of the country. I want to talk about Severodonetsk and what you understand in terms of the fighting that's going on in that part of the country. Um, and also, as you say, we saw withdrawals of Russian troops, which has freed up a lot of the country. But now it seems that Putin's uh, strategy is becoming more evident and a lot more clear. Um, you know, I think that uh, his strategy is being derived from his possibilities, at least his hopes, um, uh, because I don't think that he has a clear strategy. His strategy from the very beginning was to capture all of Ukraine. I think that almost all of the Ukraine, because I thought that uh, from the very beginning, he wanted uh, the Western Ukraine to go to uh, Poles and Hungarians, uh, so to justify the invasion. So he wanted rather to split uh, uh, Ukraine, but it failed. Now he's saying that he wants uh, 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 Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Uh, uh, that's what that's what he's speaking about right now. But I think it's very opportunistic because uh, if he can theoretically uh, capture all of Luhansk uh, uh, region, um, well, in Donetsk region he controls less than half at the moment, and I don't see the uh, real possibility for him to do uh, significant advances there. Ilya, can you give me uh, an idea of what's happening on the front lines and, and just what is going on with regards to the counteroffensive? Zelensky has said that if Ukraine does not get long-range missiles or you know, powerful rockets, that they will lose the war in the east. What is your experience on the ground? Um, I, I do think that uh, the biggest problem is in the air uh, with Air Force, uh, but that's what... Uh, uh, Americans and other countries already refused us uh, to provide. That's why we're asking for something that is, uh, you know, at least realistic. And uh, yeah, those missiles which have longer range than traditional uh, 
uh, Russian systems, uh, that gives uh, a certain advantage because then they uh, can shoot without uh, being uh, counter-attacked. Um, again, only from the air, but, uh, you know, being uh, mobile and relatively quick, uh, they, they, they could be relocated and, and kept uh, and uh, kept kept safe. But uh, already we see that uh, the military objectives, they were not uh, fulfilled. Uh, originally, Russian army, they tried to um, uh, surround uh, Severodonetsk. And by the way, that's the uh, area where my business is, part of my business is we produce natural gas right next to Severodonetsk. So I, I know that neighborhood uh, very well myself. Uh, so they uh, didn't manage to surround Severodonetsk and uh, Ukrainian army uh, holds the lines. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's backing up a little bit, but uh, at the same time, uh, the casualties on the Russian side is so much larger than on the Ukrainian side, so that uh, Putin's army is uh, really bleeding. You know, you were saying that you were worried that you weren't going to see the light of day specifically around Kyiv. And actually the stories that we're seeing that as Russian troops withdrew, um, they were leaving devastation in their wake. What do you think of the stories, the war crimes that are being registered of rape, of indiscriminate killing, um, of entire towns being trapped without any food and water. What do you think of the Russian soldiers that are executing these, these orders? Or if they're not orders, they're doing it on their own free will. I actually think they're doing it on their own free will. Uh, and I think it's, uh, there is a large degree of retaliation in it. Um, it was uh, very much the same in Chechnya. So, unfortunately, I'm not surprised about what's going on there. Uh, just uh, put yourself in the shoes of uh, a guy very young, uh, which was drafted, who is from a very remote village uh, somewhere in the middle of Siberia, uh, who knows nothing about nothing. Uh, he was told that uh, he is uh, the liberator. Uh, that he is to return uh, Ukraine to Ukrainians uh, and liberated from Nazis uh, and, and fascists. And when he is coming, he uh, realizes that uh, he was told lies, uh, that uh, his commanders are abusing him, that Ukrainians are shooting back on him, that the death is coming from every single corner of the cities that he is visiting. And these cities, by the way, they look so much better than what he was used uh, back home. So he is coming really, you know, without, and, uh, without a single understanding why he is there. And he starts to retaliate. He yeah. starts to retaliate on, on the weak primary, primarily. Are you seeing more Russians uh, joining the Ukrainian side? Is that happening on the ground? Um, you know, we receive uh, a lot of requests to do this. Uh, there are really numerous Russians who are writing me in private that uh, they want to do it. Uh, Ukrainians are not very much fascinated with uh, the idea because right now the idea of uh, having good Russians in, in, in Ukraine is extremely unpopular. Uh, and I think that Ukrainians are more or less right. Uh, you know, uh, everybody is helping Ukraine. And there are a lot of uh, international fighters which are coming to help Ukraine as well. Um, uh, so everybody can do this. There is one thing that nobody else but Russians can do is to remove Putin. And we Russians should uh, focus on that 
particular objective. And this objective has been done not in Ukraine. This objective can be uh, made only in Moscow. That is very true. Thank you, Ilya. Uh, really good to see you. We appreciate uh, you joining us today. You take care. Thank you very much for having me. Now, against the backdrop of war and emotional victory for Ukrainians, their men's national football team beat Scotland 3-1 in the World Cup qualifying playoff Wednesday night. Ukraine's coach saying, quote, this victory was not for me, not for the players. It was for our country. Ukraine is now just one win away from reaching Qatar. It's set to face off against Wales this Sunday. Call it a meta departure from social media giant Meta. <laughs> Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg is stepping down from Facebook's parent company after a 14-year tenure. Sandberg, the author of the best-selling book Lean In, is not saying why she is leaning out. She will remain on the Meta board of directors. Joining me now is Paul LaMonica. Uh, Paul, really good to see you. Uh, is, this a, is this an end of an era for Facebook and Meta, would you say? She's been such a, a vital part of the company's growth and ethos and philosophy, frankly. Yeah, it definitely, Eleni, uh, without question, is the end of an era. I mean, remember when Sheryl Sandberg came to Facebook as the COO, there was a lot of hype about the fact that this is great for the company because she's the quote unquote adult supervision for Mark Zuckerberg, who obviously at the time when she first joined was a very young and unseasoned executive in Silicon Valley. He's clearly now, of course, a much older and more mature uh, veteran executive of uh, you know, uh, the tech world and also knows how to manage Wall Street. But I think that this is a shift that a lot of investors are going to be wondering, what does it mean for Meta, especially since it really has started this pivot away from we're no longer called Facebook. We are Meta platforms. They're going to change their ticker symbol pretty soon as well from FB to Meta. And they are focusing on all of these metaverse related businesses within Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp and and what have you. So I think a lot of investors are wondering what the new COO, who is their uh, chief growth officer previously, what will he now look to do as the new chief operating officer to kind of meld some of these new product initiatives and how they will be able to generate new revenue and profit streams for Facebook meta at a time where the stock is tumbled this year because of concerns about future growth? Yeah. All right, Paula Monica, thank you so much. Always good to see you. Now, the spotlight is on Southeast Asian super app Grab as the region recovers from the COVID pandemic and borders reopen to travel. Grab operates across nations such as Cambodia, Singapore and Thailand, providing ride hailing, delivery and mobility services with an emphasis on providing tools like education and insurance for its drivers and merchant partners. Now it's expanding into digital banking with ambitions in Indonesia, Singapore and Malaysia. Julia Chatterley spoke to Grab CEO Anthony Tan about the company's post-pandemic growth and recovery at Davos last week. Southeast Asia is behind the US and Europe in terms of COVID recovery. What we've seen is we believe the worst has actually passed. Uh, we are actually optimistic. We've seen, for example, between February and April, our mobility rise has grown 32% in GMV. 
year on year. We've also seen airport rides, the peak since the... Because that's the tourism coming back. Exactly, and and business travel. And we've really seen that um, since the start of the pandemic, the peak. So overly uh, optimistic for the next few quarters. And this is important for those that you call driver partners because Mm -hmm. these are the sort of more lucrative fares as well when you're doing the longer journeys. Um, That's right. One of the benefits of what you had as well, though, was this super app basis, which allowed very quickly for drivers in the traditional ride-hailing sense to transition to, to, to food delivery. That's right. And even now, I think, and you can talk about this, but being able to perhaps do one thing at one point in time mm-hmm. when it's busy with food delivery mm-hmm. or then go and take a, mm-hmm. a, a lift passenger. Mm-hmm. So you're allowing that sort of seamless mm-hmm. transition, which helps them. It's also more lucrative for you. Yeah. So think about it this way, uh, with features like cross-vertical batching. So yeah. a, a driver partner can pick up someone's kid, send to school, after school, pick up the food, pick up coffee, then after do the grocery run. Uh, so effectively, you know, your personal concierge in many ways. Mm. But the beauty is that because the driver has the super app on his or her side, he or she's working with a very high throughput, very little dead time where we don't have to pay incentives for that time. And that way, growth for the business growth for the driver's earnings. So we've seen the driver's driver's earnings improve quarter and quarter, year on year. Uh, Utilization has improved as our incentives, as a proportion of GMV come down. Digibanks. That's right. Talk to me about the progress there. And then it goes to the point about whether you're a merchant with a restaurant that you're making deliveries to, how important is the access to things like welfare Uh, and also credit. You're you're totally right uh, about credit. In fact, when we first started, which was really to solve the safety problem uh, for for rides, especially for women, but how do you you make a phone, a mobile phone, a smartphone affordable for driver partners? So we started credit since day one in in 10 years ago. We used to say, hey, kick that cigarette habit of yours, put a dollar a day for 100 days and and you actually own a smartphone and that becomes... How do they feel about being told that? Oh, I mean, they they love it now. um, now that Tough at the beginning. Exactly, now that they're earning good money on it. Uh, And then fast forward, now we are rolling out three DG banks. So one in Malaysia, one in Singapore, and we just invested one in Indonesia. Uh, What we see is, imagine building one DG bank stack and what uh, that, that can roll out in three markets. More importantly... So use the tech of one market in other markets. Exactly, yeah. and, and leverage that stack. And then how do we drive the cost of funds down, which is a big part of doing business, at the same time make accessible financing for our driver partners, our merchant partners, because we have all the data. We know how much they make. We know are they good driver Frequency. partners, are they bad. Exactly. Work from home, no problem, but do it for someone else. Elon Musk tells his Tesla staff, return to the office or find a new one. Details after the break. Welcome back. Now, U.S. stocks are open for trading and we have a mixed open for stocks. Uh, A profit warning from Microsoft in the past hour appears to be hurting sentiment. Let's take a look at these numbers. Dow Jones is down four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ also down up slightly, actually, and the S&P taking a three-tenths of a percent knock. Microsoft shares are down by about two percent right now. It is warning of the effects of the stronger dollar. Now, in Europe, German and French stocks are still moving higher. UK markets are closed for the Queen Elizabeth Jubilee festivities. 
And then, of course, the oil markets. This is the important one. Both Brent and U.S. crude are moving higher despite reports that OPEC will boost output to ease supply concerns. Brent crude up three-tenths of a percent. Now, they report uh, that supply hike uh, a bit larger than expected. So we're seeing some movement on the supply-demand scenario coming through. Okay, return to work or work someplace else. In leaked emails sent to Tesla's executive staff, Elon Musk told them to spend at least 40 hours a week in the office. He says, for the most part, quote, if you don't show up, we will assume you have resigned. Matt Egan joins me now. Um, I read this email, I think so many of us have. It is fascinating to see the wording, sort of the undercurrents. I can't say it exactly you know, makes you feel like you want to get back into the office. Um, But it's definitely gained a lot of traction on social media and, of course, Elon Musk's management style. Uh, That's safe to say, Eleni. You know, say what you want about Elon Musk, but you can't call him subtle, at least not on this topic. He's giving his employees an ultimatum. Get back to the office or leave. Let me read you a, a key line from this email to staff. Elon Musk wrote, Quote, anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum, and I mean minimum, of 40 hours per week or depart Tesla. This is less than we ask of factory workers. Now, Elon's hardline stance here is a little awkward because it's really the polar opposite of the policy of the company that he's trying to buy right now, and that's Twitter. I mean, Twitter uh, isn't just telling their employees that they could work from home this year or next year, they said that employees can work from home, quote, forever. Uh, just a few months ago, Twitter CEO put out this statement on, online saying, wherever you feel most productive and creative is where you will work, and that includes working from home full-time forever. And let's not forget that this is not taking place in a vacuum. I mean, there is a war for talent going on right now. We learned just yesterday that the United States has a near record number of job openings, a near record number of people have quit their jobs. Firing is historically low. Uh, So, you know, you wonder whether or not this could impact Tesla's uh, ability to attract workers. Uh, Other auto companies, of course, are, are moving into electric vehicles. So it's not like people don't have elsewhere to go. And Eleni, we have seen some other business leaders, most notably Morgan Stanley CEO, uh, come out and try to take a, a pretty tough stance on work from home as well. And he later had to walk it back. I, I don't know if Elon's going to have to do the same thing. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we always, you know, when I see Elon Musk, you think he's kind of flexible on these things, but clearly he's not. Um, interesting to see this kind of language coming through. But I'm sure we'll hear from him uh, on Twitter. Matt Egan, always good to see you. And that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jokos in Dubai. Thanks so much for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.